and welcome back to Things Are Going Great For Me, a podcast about the arts and the entertainment business. My name is Jay Claude Deering. I'm an actor and a comedian. If you're returning to the show, I'm absolutely thrilled. And if you're new here, welcome. Pull up a chair and get comfortable because we want you all to enjoy yourselves. You can follow me, your host, at Deering on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow our show handle on Instagram at Things Are Going Great For Me. There you'll find our link tree that has links for our Patreon and some cool Things Are Going Great For Me swag, including a quietly dignified Things Are Going Great For Me coffee mug. Hey, the holidays are upon us. Why not treat yourself and a family member to some dignified swag? We've got hoodies, t-shirts, and tote bags, so check them out and listen in comfort and style. You can find all our products in our link tree on our show Instagram page at Things Are Going Great For Me. On our link tree, you'll also find our Patreon, which features additional interview coverage from our Season 1, Season 2, and Season 3 guests, including our bonus Quarpod series, in which I ask guests about how they adjusted to life in quarantine and how the pandemic is continuing to change life in the entertainment industry. Our Patreon is a vital part of making this show happen, so if you'd like to support us, give us a subscribe on there. You can check us out on Patreon directly at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And by the way, we're delighted to welcome back our sponsor for this series, Icelandic Glacial, the purest tasting water on earth, sourced from the legendary Ulfus Spring in Iceland, naturally filtered through ancient lava rock, and certified carbon neutral for both product and operation. You are what you drink. Be exceptional. Icelandic Glacial natural spring water sourced from Iceland. Available on Amazon and at local retailers near you. If you like any of what you hear today, please do us a big kindness. Subscribe to the show. Leave us a nice comment. Tell your aunt about us. Give us those five stars wherever you're getting your podcast from today. On each episode of this series, you'll hear from huge movie stars, big TV stars, famous podcast hosts, and even some bright, shining Broadway stars, as well as second guest interviews with exciting up-and-coming actors and comedians and established producers, authors, writers, and directors. Today's first guest is Claiborne Elder. Clay is a Drama Desk and Lucille Lortel nominated actor who appeared most recently on Broadway playing Andy in the Tony Award-winning revival of Company. In fact, we recorded this interview over the summer during the closing weeks of that historic show, so this chat serves in some way as an interesting time capsule. Clay is also known for his performances on Broadway in Sunday in the Park with George, Torch Song, Bonnie and Clyde, and Sondheim on Sondheim at the Hollywood Bowl. On television, he's known for his role as Pete O'Malley on The Carrie Diaries, and up next, he'll be returning as John Adams on the second season of HBO's The Gilded Age. Clay has been an out actor since the beginning of his career, and both he and his husband are advocates for LGBTQ youth. He's also an active participant in the Covenant House's sleepouts in solidarity with young people who are trying to overcome homelessness. Recently, Clay launched an initiative called City of Strangers NYC to provide free tickets to people who can't afford Broadway shows, which has gained unexpected attention nationally and was featured on CBS This Morning. Clay is a wonderful person with whom I share a couple of good mutual friends, and this is a great chat. I'll be speaking with him in a few minutes. And a little bit later, you'll also get my interview with Lauren Buglioli. Lauren was born in Los Angeles, California. She's been working as an actor since she was literally in diapers. After moving to London, England for middle and high school, she worked in film, television, radio, and theater. In her own words, she is just a person doing her best. <laughs> She's also an actor, voiceover artist, audition coach, educator, dog mom, and enthusiast. Her training includes London Central School of Speech and Drama, the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, NYU, Stella Adler Studios, the Lee Strasberg Institute, UCB, Leslie Kahn, and others. 
She recently landed a big recurring role on the upcoming series Florida Man, and she's appearing in the upcoming feature film Tyler Perry's A Jazz Man's Blues. She also has a degree in early childhood education and special education from NYU, and she's adopted two dogs, Vixen and Beverly Hills Cop 2, and she desperately wants to show you a photo of them. Lauren's appearance on this podcast completes an important trifecta for me of friends of mine from high school who are doing outstanding work in the arts, and Lauren is fast becoming a breakout star. Stick around for her interview. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss it. But first up, and without further ado, here now is the lovely, talented, and kind Claiborne Elder. So we were introduced via our mutual friend, uh, John Fletcher. John uh, became my booker this season when we had to reschedule his interview. And he's such a good dude that he put us in touch. He's the best. And, yeah. you know, I'm wondering now, did you meet John while working at the public theater? Because I know he had done a production of a new musical there years ago. No, we actually met working on Bonnie and Clyde on Broadway um, 10 oh, right. years ago. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, um, and have been friends ever since. We became close or fast friends on that show and then just stuck by each other. That show... Uh, it was Jeremy Jordan was the lead in that one. You played the brother, is that correct? Yeah, I played his brother. I've never seen Bonnie and Clyde. Is this the Gene Hackman role? Is that what you were doing? I can't remember who that yes. is. Yes. Oh, Yeah, okay, the Gene great. Hackman role. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's wonderful. And who did John, who, who was John in that? John actually was the cover for Jeremy Jordan. Oh my God, that's a big, I didn't know that about John. It was well, a big gonna, deal, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to ask him he was, about that. Oh, he was so good. He was really fantastic in the role. He's a wonderful actor. Uh, so are you. And then it, so, and it turns out that you and I have an even longer mutual friend uh, in Elna Baker, who's been a guest on this podcast in episode 10. It's my favorite interview that I've done. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yep, Elna is now a producer with This American Life. And um, and we were just speaking before this recording a little bit because it, I, I guess we knew her in high school. I've known Elna as early as eighth grade. And um, but I thought that the two of you knew each other originally from Utah. And you were just telling me just now that you knew her originally from theater camp in Seattle. Is that right? Well, the theater camp was in Utah. So she came. It was a summer camp in Utah um, that was just like a month long. And we did it every summer for four years together with a couple of other people that we like became friends with. And then we got to be so close that we started like visiting each other. So I went to visit her in Seattle in high school and she, when she would come out to Utah and see family, we would hang out and yeah. Um, yeah. I remember her showing me a picture because you jogged my memory about this and you know, you, you, I, it, I was trying to think and it's like, I think I remember her showing me a photograph once of a friend of hers that was in a shopping cart in the middle of a parking lot. Was that you? That is, that is definitely me. That was <laughs> definitely me. <laughs> I was, I was oh wondering, I might, now here's my impressions of that photograph. This is what I remember. My, what I remember is this is someone that Elna cares a lot about. I could tell that. 
And secondly, I remember thinking to myself, this is a person who has a lot of energy. The person in the photograph, this is a person who has a lot of energy. That's what I remember. That was my <laughs> weird takeaway from that photograph. Does I that love track? both of those things. That does. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I hope Elna likes me as much. I like her very much. Um, yeah, we are. And um, I, I think she likes me a lot. And I yes, I would say I do have a lot of energy. I um, yeah. Yeah. I like I keep myself busy yeah, to my you, detriment sometimes. You, but <laughs> that's my understanding that you do. You keep yourself very busy. I want to ask you a couple questions about that as we as we proceed here. But so now just this past week, Elna published her own interview with you on This American Life. She she scooped me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she wanted to report on this remarkable story of a chance interaction with a theater patron that you had 15 years ago when you first moved to New York uh, that changed the course of your life. And, you know, we were talking just now about this sort of um, probably some nervousness about moving to New York City and what who would you find there? And then, of course, you have this, of course, not of course, but surprisingly, you have this wonderful rea- uh, interaction with a patron at this theater. And, you know, you've done a few interviews about this moment recently because I guess you decided to post about it on social media. Uh, would you mind explaining a little bit for my listeners what happened and what followed when you posted about this on Instagram? Yeah. So, I mean, the basic outline of the story is 15 years ago, I came to New York and I was broke and um, in college and a, a stranger outside a theater handed me $200, saw that saw me in a show enjoying this performance. And he said, you look like you were having more fun than the people in the expensive seats. Here's $200. Go buy yourself a ticket to Sweeney Todd tomorrow on Broadway. It'll change your life. And, you know, I was, uh, like I said, broke and in college and I could have done a, a lot of things with $200. <laughs> But um, but I did. I did what he said, and because um, he made you, you know, promise, it was not, because he made me promise that I would yeah. spend the money on the tickets. And I was a good, recently not Mormon boy, so I still was, yeah, of course, going to do that. And I I bought tickets uh, to the show, went inside, and and then cut to now, fifteen years later, uh, I'm I'm in company on Broadway. Yeah. Starring Patty Lapone. Patty right. Lapone also starred in Sweeney Todd, Sweeney the one Todd. that I saw. Yeah. And I was out of the show with COVID for 10 days right after we opened. And I was so sad to be missing the show. We had waited, you know, we yeah. we'd closed down during the pandemic. So we were really bummed. I was really bummed to be missing out on the show. And when I came back in, kind of in the spirit of that that man who had given me the money 15 years ago, I decided to give away a pair of tickets just on Instagram and two incredible things happened. One, people started donating more and more and more and more money. And now we've continued it on. We've actually, we're starting a nonprofit for this. We've welcomed 1,400 people into a Broadway house, not for free, but paid for by a stranger. Strangers who have donated money to buy tickets. Yeah. And then I, I posted this picture of this man and I, because after, after the man gave me the $200, I asked if I could take a picture with him. It was sort of the only thing I could think of to do. And I posted the picture online. And a friend of mine who I work on The Gilded Age with mm-hmm. called me up and said, I know that guy. Do you want to meet him? And so he connected us on FaceTime without telling this guy wh- why we were all FaceTiming. Yeah. 
and we got on together and I got to say to him, you know, 15 years ago, you gave me some, you gave me money for some tickets outside a theater. And he immediately started crying and knew exactly what I was talking about. You know what? And partially I, I wondered if it was this big monumental moment to me, but it meant nothing to him, but, or he wouldn't even remember, but he did remember. And he remembered me. He remembered things about me. It's not something that he did a lot. It's not like he was walking around handing out money for Broadway <laughs> tickets all the time. And, um, and so we, I got to tell him and it was a very, you know, cathartic, emotional, mushy reunion. And now we're friends. And actually he came to see the show this weekend. Amazing. Um, he was, he's from LA, but he came out to New York and he came to see company and we had dinner and, um, so it, it's been amazing and, and, you know, such an insane, the, the largest coincidence of my life and, you know, something that makes me very hopeful in lots of ways. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. What an amazing story. And, you know, for this now, now that this sort of little nonprofit is just starting to like uh, gather a little bit of steam, is there any place that I can direct folks to to go to if they want to be if they want to help pay for somebody's ticket to a Broadway show? Yes. Yes, we have. Right now, we just have an Instagram page. It's um, and the handle is at City of Strangers NYC. Um, City of Strangers is one of the songs in Company. Yeah. Um, and City of Strangers NYC. And you can go. There's a GoFundMe there where people can go donate money um, for tickets. That's lovely. So huge congratulations on all of the Tony Awards and nominations for this revival of Stephen Sondheim's company on Broadway. Uh, you. you're, you're in this show with a wonderful cast of people, a crack creative team. You, of course, play flight attendant Andy, the scene with the very funny Barcelona song. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the show. Many, one of many favorite moments in the show. This has been the third Broadway revival of the show and your fourth Broadway show. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And I, I understand the show is closing this month. Is that right? That's Sadly. right. We have about two and a half more weeks. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to say thank you for making time for me during what must be a busy and emotional time for you in the show. Right? I mean, how, oh, how, how is it, how's it going? Yeah. You know, we, I got cast in this show four years ago. And oftentimes with a Broadway show, you get cast a couple of months before rehearsals start you jump into rehearsal, you do the show, and a year later, you're done. Mm. Um, with this show, you know, all of us have been with it for almost four years. And, you know, we did a whole rehearsal process and we were a week out, out from opening the show when the COVID shutdown happened. And so all through that, all through COVID, we've really remained connected. So it will be, I will miss the show a lot. I will really, really miss the people. I will really miss seeing them every day. You know, there was something bonding us um, for the past four years that, yeah. not that we won't, but, you know, always in shows, when a Broadway show opens and closes, there are those few people that you actually do hold on to and keep. John Fletcher is one of those people for me from Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah. And, and you can't hold on to everybody. It's just impossible. And so... You do. You kind of you'll you miss the um, you miss showing up at work every day with them and and sharing the time on stage together. And yeah, um, so I will. I, that's what I will miss the most is the people, though. I think the show is just fantastic. They're going to tour it next year, which is great. 
Mm. Um, I don't think any of us will do it because um, a lot of us have families and things that would prevent us from going on tour. But I think it will be great to have it out on tour. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I had wish I'd been on the East Coast and gotten a chance to see your production, but I'm I'm so glad to know that Stephen Sondheim was involved and got to see this production, notable for its reconsideration of gender in terms of casting the lead and the rest of the roles. Um, it's one of my absolute favorite shows. I got a I had a lovely opportunity to play Bobby my senior year at NYU. Um, oh, amazing. And I'm I'm also grateful to the show for introducing me to the work of Elaine Stretch, which uh, oh. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen the D.A. Pennebaker documentary of the original cast recording, right? Yes, absolutely. There's an incredible so sequence good. with Elaine Stretch, uh, Dame Elaine Stretch, where they've left they've they've left ladies who lunch till the very end of the recording session, uh, and meanwhile the the she and the rest of the sort of the creative team have been out for dinner at loud bars and, and drinking. And so then by the time they get to her song, she is completely fried, you know? And one of the thing this is one of the things that initially scared me away from, by the way, of course, for anybody who doesn't know, she then comes back the next morning and absolutely fucking destroys. So she does her makeup and the, it's fucking incredible. So if you have so not good. seen that, it's so documentary, good. <laughs> please go see it. D.A. Pennebaker, the uh, maker of that documentary and also Pumping Iron, which is an incredible documentary about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, I and, didn't know that. And bodybuilding. Yeah. Genius. Oh, wow. uh, a genius working, uh, you know, with other geniuses there like George Firth and Stephen Zahn. It's just an incredible collaboration on that particular documentary. Yeah. So but one of the things that initially scared me away from staying in New York and going ahead and making a go at Broadway musical theater at the time is the physical demands of it, you know, at a time in my life where I wanted to go out to loud restaurants and drink at bars. And it seemed impossible to me that you could keep your voice in such good shape for eight shows a week and God knows how many months or years. How, how do you take care of your vocal and physical instrument? And have you ever been stricken with one of these horrible bouts of laryngitis or vocal nodes or anything like that? Yeah, it is. I tell people all the time that being on Broadway is a lot more like being an athlete than an artist in a lot of, in the care that you have to give yourself and your body. And, um, yeah. and you know, your two little vocal folds, which are, which produce the sound. And they're just these two little tiny muscles that are very sensitive. And, um, you know, it is difficult and it does require a lot of attention. You know, I, you definitely don't go out to loud places after the show. Um, we're always, always looking for like the quiet restaurant where we can, you can go and hide and no one will know who you are and you can sit down and just talk to your friends yeah. after a show. Um, and you know, it, I also, I'm in my underwear in the show. And so that in addition <laughs> to eating super, super well and going to the gym, because I have to take care of that part of the performance as well. It is just a lot of work. And there's part of me that is so exhausted that I will be happy to not do the show because it's just so much work. Um, I've never had vocal nodes. I did have um, a partially, I, I paralyzed the vocal cord. I was doing a musical at the public theater um, about seven or eight years ago. And I was singing this, singing this song. And there was this high part that I really liked to kind of lean into, which you're not supposed to do, you know, don't press your voice mm. like that. And I, I felt this pop right. and I um, went to the voice doctor and I, I had probably popped a blood vessel on my vocal cord and it partially paralyzed my cord for the rest of the run of that show. 
And I even, I recorded a cast album for that show and I'm singing on the cast album with kind of one and a half vocal cord. They, are they filling you full of uh, shots of steroids and things like that? Is that, cause I, this happened to me one time. I was still in college, but for me it was just, I was stupid. I was 21. I was smoking pot. I mm-hmm. blew my, I got a, blew my voice out. And I had that, like you're saying that pop sound. I, that, and then all of a sudden I sounded like a frog. Oh. And I so then I yeah I had to go see the voice doctor and he gave me the the shots of steroids. How did you? Is that what they gave you? Yeah, I mean they you know steroids vocal steroids are something that are they're they're really they're not great for you because they are hiding your body's response mm. you know to protecting it. However, we all have to use them at some point. I've had to use them once in the run of company already. Um, usually it's not a shot that now they have like a pack that you take that are just pills and it's not the, it's not the steroids that'll make you big and strong. It's the steroids that take all the inflammation out of your body. Yeah. And, um, and so it does take all the inflammation out of your cords unless you use them and you sort of feel like Superman cause you're like, Oh my gosh, my voice is back. But then about two days later you crash <laughs> and it's awful. And, um, you're really likely to get sinus infections and, on, when you're taking steroids, it, it stops your body's defense mechanisms from from working so well. Yeah. So it is really only in the case of an emergency that that I ever use them. But uh, I think when I had my vocal injury, I'm sure they put me on steroids right away just to try to stop the swelling. Um. But yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't. I wasn't on them for very long. I don't think. Yeah. Do, uh, so. T- you know, there was this interesting moment, I guess, that happened in the through, during the production. There was some kind of a talkback, I guess, right, where some person in the audience decided not to wear. They did that thing where they were wearing the mask under their damn nose or something, and Ms. Lup- Dame Ms. Lupone <laughs> just absolutely shouted them out of the. I mean, base. I mean, they did, and of course, they. You you would imagine having, you know, earned the wrath of someone so formidable that they would have melted into a puddle immediately. But no, of course not, because this is America. This person uh-huh. then responded, no, I pay your salary. When she said, you know, wear your damn mask or get the fuck out, right? This yeah. was, were you on stage for this? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't there. This was a talkback for, um, it was a women women on Broadway talkback. So it was most, it was just the women in the show. I wasn't uh. out there. I was in the theater, but I was not on stage to hear it uh. all. And so and, what, a, um, what a great opportunity then for someone to make sure these women know who pays their salary. This is what this person said. Oh my gosh. Good yeah. God, it's never ending. And we all have t-shirts now that say Chris Harper pays our salary. Chris Harper is the lead producer on the show. That's, and yeah. someone sent us all t-shirts that say Chris Harper pays my salary. I love that. Um, <laughs> that came up at the Tonys and it was so great. I loved it. Yeah. It um, well, she was very important. Patty LuPone, very important to me. As I said, you know, this the first professional show I ever did was this show, Evita, and, uh, when I was a child. And so, yeah, I would listen to that Broadway recording with... Um, with herself and Mandy Patinkin. And that was very much of my introduction to professional Broadway. So, you know, professional to Broadway. So I think, you know, (laughs) she is a a living legend. And, um, you know, I I want to talk about Stephen Sondheim as well, but I think that, you know, uh, working with her, I, I suppose you both became quite close. Is that right? Uh, yeah, you know, we've gotten to be friends as much as you can be friends with a, you know, 
like a legendary person of the musical theater, you know, and the theater, um, who's quite a bit older than you, but we've, we have become friends. You know, she, she and I have the same birthday and we sort of bonded over that early on. And then we just started, I don't know, we just started hanging out and, um, and now we like, she's renovating her house in Connecticut. And so I, helped her pick out like we went appliance shopping together and I helped her pick out tile and we text all day about finishes for kitchen countertops and because things. this is something that you do as well. Yeah. My dad was a contractor and so I've renovated a few houses on my own and um, did one recently and during the pandemic. And so I kind of had, you know, a lot of information about the current run of appliances and things like that. So we bonded over that and, and, um, I don't know, we've hung out a bunch of times now and, you know, she, um, she set up, she has two dressing rooms, which is kind of common on Broadway to have like a dressing room and a reception room, um, for, for a star. And she, instead of having a reception room, she turned it into a bar just for the cast and crew and she stocks it full of booze and treats and she invites us all to hang out there. We're actually all hanging out there tonight after the show. And she has these nights where we all go hang out in Patty's room. Hmm. And, um, and it's so, she just, she loves being a part of a company and she just wants the company to be close and friends. And like, she loves that, that kind of backstage culture. Yeah. And so, so it's fun to be in a show with her because she's all about creating a fun environment for everybody. Um, yeah, she's really wonderful. That's so cool. So today you are a Drama Desk and Lucille Lortel Award-nominated actor. Company is your ninth professional production of a Stephen Sondheim show, including other productions. Sunday in the Park with George was that? Is that the one with, with the Jake Gyllenhaal did? Okay. Yeah. And Sondheim on Sondheim at the Hollywood Bowl. Very cool. Um, our friend John Fletcher mentioned to me that you had a close relationship with Stephen Sondheim, and he knew to tell me that because he knows that I loved Stephen Sondheim. He was my favorite artist across yeah. any genre, film, music, theater, television. Um, I, would, I would agree with you. So, and you, you were... Hollis, uh, you got cast as Hollis in the original cast uh, cast of Roadshow at the Public Theater, one of his sort of later shows. Uh, mm-hmm. And you wrote about it in a post that you had gone to an open call for this show. You did not have an agent at the time. And Stephen Sondheim and director John Doyle, as you wrote, took a big chance on you. Can you talk a little bit about that audition process and then how did your relationship sort of develop after, afterwards with Mr. Sondheim? Can you share a little bit about that? Whatever you're comfortable yeah. with. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, of course. No, it's, um, you know, I, I, yeah, so I, I came to New York, you know, soon after the man that gave me that $200, I moved to New York and didn't have an agent, didn't really know anybody in New York. So I just started going to open chorus calls, open calls, any open audition. Fuck. I was auditioning so- for like, but please, yeah. if I may, so you wait a minute, because these calls, I did maybe two of these before I left uh, New York City forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, not because I hated New York, but because I just was like, I, thinking about Broadway, the physical demands of Broadway, I was just like, I don't know. I want to party. I want to hang out. And, mm-hmm. and I liked film and television as well. I had studied musical theater in college, but it also studied at a couple of, at another acting uh, studio at, the, at Stella Adler. And I just thought, 
film and television. I had gone on a couple of those open calls, and it's like, you're lined up for hours, right? You're lined mm-hmm. up for hours. I remember doing one for, what was it? Was it Mamma Mia? I don't remember what it was. You, they had told us 32 bars, okay? Uh-huh. We waited. I waited for probably two hours. I remember get, finally getting in the building, which today would be a COVID nightmare. You're in the building oh packed underground at some Broadway house, in, and you're sort of shuffled away into various rooms. I remember just being in a room just packed about, full of actors. And by the time I actually got into the room to sing, they had reduced us all to eight bars. Eight bars oh my of a song. So you're telling That's me. That's like 15 seconds. That's 10 seconds or 15 seconds of a song. Yeah. It's nothing. so crazy. And so you're tell, I, what I'm amazed by is that basically you're doing these kinds of auditions and you book <laughs> a role in a Stephen Sondheim show at the public theater. But you're doing this kind of, these kinds of auditions? Yeah. Yes. Just doing the open auditions. You know, I, I had studied musical theater. I went to BYU and studied musical theater And then I went to Russia and studied acting in Moscow for a year. And then I came back and I got a degree in dramaturgy when I came back from the University of Utah because I wanted an American degree, even though I was like, I feel like I've got my study, but I wanted a degree and then um, came to New York. So I know I hadn't even been acting for a while because I'd been really studying dramaturgy. And so I started... Sorry, there's a police car driving by. I'm just going to wait for it to drive by. Yeah, I think you said, yeah. This is too good. And I'm... It's, like, it's like right in front of my house. Wait, is there some kind of a large loop around your house? Where? Oh, are the cops coming to your house? No, ah! no I live on Riverside Drive. So they're probably coming up Riverside Drive. My like God. Like really slowly. I don't know why. Very slowly, yeah. It's, that's the longest police siren I think we've no, had on one seriously. of these interviews. It's somebody on a bike. It's a policeman on a bike. <laughs> it's still good. okay. I think that's over. So, <laughs> so. Oh my gosh! There's another one. There's another one. Oh my god! And, I hope... and by the way, it's it's a British one. I don't know and why I it's know, making yeah, European. Yeah, it is a British one. I'm gonna look. Yeah, please do. No idea. Something has happened. Yeah, something has clearly happened. Here comes the fire engine. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. So. Okay. I'm going to so, ask you. I'll so, just ask you again. So you were going on. You were doing these kinds of auditions. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So I was going to these open auditions. I'd studied musical theater in college. I'd studied acting in Russia. I came now, to New York. I was like, all when right. You, when yeah. you went to study in, so you're studying at the Moscow Art Theater. Is, are you doing that program? No, I was in the Moscow Class Academy, which is a different acting school. It's an international theater school. Oh, okay. Pardon me. Got it. Yeah. No. And, um, I, and so I was going to these open auditions. I got some little jobs out of town, um, but I'd really said that I was going to try to stay in New York for a year and see if I could find work in New York as an actor. And um, I got, but then finally the next summer, so I went to this open audition for this show. They kept calling me back and calling me back and calling me back. And I was like, this is very nice, but there's no way I will ever get this job. Um, And then Stephen Sondheim was in the room and I was like, oh no, oh, you're serious. Uh, uh, (laughs) And, um, And then 
that summer, I was in the ensemble of Sweeney Todd at the Sacramento Music Circus and for the summer. And while I was doing it, I got a call from the casting director at the public who was like, hey, I couldn't, I'm sorry to call you personally, but I couldn't find your agent's number. And I was like, I don't have an agent. And he told me that I got the job. So, and so, I didn't believe him. I thought I, I thought he must have been talking about the understudy or something. Yeah. I even I told I told the people in my cast who were all like, "You got cast in what? What? How did like playing the role?" And I was like, "Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, because um, I was just some kid at that point. You know, just uh, you know." Now, when you're um, auditioning for Mr. Sondheim in the room, you're just, what are you doing? You're singing a, a song. What are you singing for him? What did you sing? I sang, I sang Giants in the Sky. Okay. Because I had been in Into the Woods when I was in high school. Okay. And they said to come and bring a Stephen Sondheim song. How old were and, you at um, this point? I was 25. Okay. And, um, and then they had me do scene work from the show. Like okay. I sat and read the scenes with the casting director. And, um, did he give you any notes? Like, did Sondheim say like, oh, I was good. You did this or anything like that. No, he was quiet. No, no, not at that point. The director, t- the director and I talked a lot and he was, you know, he's a British directors are very, you know, like American directors stay behind the desk and just sit and listen to you and talk to you. British directors will like stand up and come to the other side with you and talk to you and put your hand on their shoulder and like, want to work with you in general I have found and um and he did and we had a so my auditions were like 30 minutes long you know they weren't um they weren't just like coming in sing and leave and then I got that job and worked with Sondheim had the most fun he was there every single day with us and he was kind of you know he both was very strict about what he wanted, but also was very open to interpretation and, and ideas. He was really open to ideas. And he was such a champion of, of people's talent. I remember when we recorded the cast album of Roadshow, I had very much of an, an imposter syndrome much mm. of the time I was doing the show. Yeah, yeah. And we were recording the cast album and, and he's wrote me a letter afterwards and that I have that he, he said, um, I just heard the first cut of the album. Um, you, sh- you should be very proud of yourself. And if you're not, you need to change that and be more proud of yourself, essentially. Wow. And um, he, you know, he believed in me and a lot of other people more than we believed in ourselves, I think. And then I continued to do Sondheim shows a lot, you know. Um, I, and as I continued to do them, I'd always write him and ask him for opinions and things like that. And, um, and then I actually became good friends with his husband on a social level. Mm. Um, we would like, we would go running in the park every week together. And so I would go visit them at their house in Connecticut, sometimes with my husband and, uh, stuff like that. Just more, I was more friends with his husband, um, Jeff. And, and then also, I mean, so anyway, we had this friendship. We would always, you know, I would see him at things and stuff all the time and worked on his shows a lot. And towards the end of his life, um, you know, working on this show with him was really special. I got to like in the room a lot of, to talk to him a lot and, and get his opinions on things. And actually I took my son out to Connecticut to meet him 
Mm. Um, my son is four. Yeah, yeah. And at first I thought there is no way that Stephen Sondheim wants my four-year-old in his house. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, but we went over and hung out for an afternoon and Steve and, and Bo, my son just talked about the ocean and talked about things. And, oh my God, you know, Steve said, you know, Steve said he is a really special kid. And I said, you know, I, I, and I said, you know, every parent thinks their kid is a genius. And Steve stopped me and said, I don't think he's a genius. I think he's a very special kid. He was, he was very particular about words and their meanings. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, you know, like I was speaking in a more general sense of like everybody, every parent thinks their kid is the, the best. Right. And he was like, no, this is a very special kid. And then he gave me like lists of classical music that he wanted me to play for him. So for his education and, um, <laughs> and yeah. And we like talked about puzzles and it, it was amazing. And we had a conversation, which he has said before about, you know, his regret in life is not having kids. And, you know, he said, when I was your age, it was not even in the realm of possible. Yeah. And I just really wish I would have been a father. Right. And I was yeah. like, you know, listening to Stephen Sondheim say that was like my jaw was on the floor and I, I cried yeah. About it later. Um, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry about it now. I mean, I think that yeah. like the things that was also, and I've heard you, I've read things that you've said about, you know, your, that this is important to you to have a family. Um, and, you know, it's interesting about, particularly with Sondheim is like this relationship with his own mother, which just sounded uh, pretty, pretty terrible, you know, like, mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's moving to hear him talk about this, uh, or, mm-hmm. or hear what he had to say about it. And what a beautiful moment that, that he got to share this, those feelings with you and particularly while hanging out with your son. That's a wonder, what a beautiful moment. Yeah. Um, and I'll never, you know, I, I have all these pictures now of Bo and Steve at their house and stuff, like all of us playing and hanging out. But I thought to myself, you know, I have no idea what Bo is going to want to do with his life, but just that it, it feels like a short film or like a play of like the last days of Sondheim and my four-year-old hanging out with him. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was really beautiful and moving. And, you know, the thing, the part of the genius of Sondheim, which, you know, he's kind of the Shakespeare of our generation mm. is and I think that Company is a really good example of this. The, Steve wrote Company, the music for it, and he wasn't married and hadn't been married and yet perfectly described marriage. Yeah. And lots of different facets of it. And he did that with parenthood too. He had a really remarkable, empathetic way of looking at another person's experience and really understanding it. Right. And the, you know, the what he's written about in, in Into the Woods and Sunday in the Park with George about parenthood, about what it's a children and art and yeah. all these things are just miraculously true. They are. Yeah. And he never was a parent, but he knew. He just knew. And it's incredible. I think about that too. I don't know how he knew. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and I know that George Firth wrote, he was such a fan of George Firth's and George Firth was a brilliant writer, but... But then still, there's a song like Sorry Grateful. And you're like, well, how the fuck? 
Mm-hmm. How do you how do you know that? You know, like if he yeah. so until later, you know, in, in his actual yeah. life. But um that's so true. I think about that a lot. Um thank you for sharing that stuff with me. I uh, yeah. those are beautiful stories. Um so nowadays, uh, in addition to performing on Broadway, you're you're in the Gilded Age on on HBO. You're yes. playing the character of John Adams, the, the other man, so to speak, or maybe the the yes. man. <laughs> the, one this, of the men. The, one of the men. <laughs> this is the se- the secret boyfriend of Oscar, Christine Baranski's son on the show, and Oscar is trying to marry the Russell daughter, and your character mm-hmm. doesn't want him to, and so he shows up at this Newport, Rhode Island party with Lady Astor mm-hmm. crashes the party. And then mm-hmm. the Russell daughter starts having eyes for John Adams. Is that, I have that correct? That's correct, yes. <laughs> now this is a, a Julian Fellows joint. Uh, yes. Creator of Downton Abbey. It takes place, I guess, the turn of the century, New York. Um, one of the jokes about the Gilded Age, I suppose, or comments, I suppose, is that it yeah. features almost every Broadway actor. It's like, it's just get, it is true. And particularly, I guess, from the musical theater, which is not, was not always the case with the New York shows. It's like, there tended to be a little bit of a like, well, yeah, those musical theater uh-huh. people. Right? Well, you're a musical theater actor. Right, so, right. Yeah. But yeah. this show doesn't yeah. do any, this is very refreshing to see all of our, hero, of our, our heroes from musical theater uh, on this show. Um, I guess the, the 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 show that previously held the the title was the landmark procedural show Law and Order, which I don't think you've done. Mm-hmm. You haven't done a Law and Order. No, I've done FBI, but I've never done Law and Order. <laughs> never and... have I ever. <laughs> You're missing out. Uh, I don't know if you are. Uh-huh. And they, so, but the Gilded Age has been renewed for a second season. So, big congratulations on that. And um, thank you. Do you know as of yet if wh- whether you're you have a, a bigger part to play in season? Have you been told anything yet in terms of what's coming up for your character? Yeah, we've been we started filming. Um, okay. They started filming the second season in May, and. Um, so we, so I do know what happens, and I'm not allowed to tell you anything. But <laughs> of course, I, of course. But we're filming right now, and um, it's so good to be back. It's, you know, it because it is full of musical theater actors. Going to set is like going to a family reunion because even if we don't, sorry, there's some sort of screaming outside. Um, going to set is like going to a family reunion because we are all. You either know you either know everybody or you know someone who knows everybody. Like mm. every single person, we're like, "Oh, you did that show with that person, and we're friends." And they'll be like, "Yes, no, I've heard of you," you know. And um, so I've gotten to be close with some people that I didn't know that I that are just in the musical theater world. But also because because we're all theater people, they're also we all sort of work in the same way, and so mm. there is a sense of like we all rehearse the same way. We all you know approach it in a similar with a similar style and that's really nice yeah oh that's wonderful and so uh and you've also talked about being a dad we, we were just talking about this you know i've got two kids they're, they're the best part mm-hmm. of my life but you know you, you you said this thing about in an interview the idea of being a parent and a performer that you didn't know you were or had been told that it's it's tricky, you know, in terms of time mm-hmm. commitments. And I am finding that, you know, it it is a struggle. You have to make every second count. 
we've talked about how busy a person you are. What do you do? I mean, you've renovated this your own house, right? This farmhouse that you're that you live in yes. on the Hudson Valley. Yeah. How do you find the time? <laughs> and how do you do this? And what is your commute like to work? Oh. Well, actually, I have an apartment in the city as well. So I'm in the city during the week. We're, and my son goes to school in the city. And then we just were up on the weekends to the house now. Oh, okay, we we spent it. the whole right. pandemic there. But now we are now we are here. Okay. But, um, you know, it's challenging. It really is challenging. Before, I mean, before I've started, since I was married, every time I've started a Broadway show, there's that sit-down conversation that's like, okay, we just have to prepare ourselves for the insanity that, is going to be this schedule, but it's only a year. And you know, if you're yeah. very lucky, you're in a Broadway show every three or four years, maybe less even, or maybe more even, maybe more years. Mm. And so it's not like it's all the time. You do it for these sections of your life where you really have to like hunker down and work very hard. And mostly everything just has to be very scheduled, especially with a kid that like everyone knows, my manager knows, no one calls me. Like I pick my son up at school and no one talks to me until I have to go to the theater because that's my time with him because I, I miss bedtime every single night except for Sundays and Mondays. Right. So just people know that that is like my sacred time to be with him. And then, you know, the summer has been more challenging because he's out of school and I just want to hang out with him all the time. But I do have to work during the day doing these other things. And so we just, you know, it really is quality. That's the quality of time we spend together. That is the most important. And, um, and you know, he's, I, I used to have a lot of weird feelings about him growing up in New York and growing up the child of two artists. And really, I think what I was upset about or worried about was that he wasn't going to have the childhood I had, which is, you know, like I grew up out in the middle of nowhere, running around fields with no shoes on. And it was very opposite to this. But yeah, he's yeah. growing up backstage at Broadway theaters and has calls Patty Aunt Patty. And, mm-hmm. you know, like he's having this other really incredible life. And, you know, he came to see the show. He's only four. But I was but, you know, we had other kids who have other cast members come in. And I was like, you know, that's right. I should bring him. So we came I'm and impressed. he sat in a little box. I'm yeah. very impressed. He sat. He, I mean, I'm anytime you're on stage, I'm sure he's like, there's daddy. Like, that's got to be amazing. But like to sit through the whole thing, that's that's not easy. I, you know, I, I don't no. think that my kids could do it. Yeah, it's it was it was I mean, he definitely got bored. There's some long book scenes in our show, but he loved when I was on stage. He loved all the musical numbers. Yeah. And he sat through the whole thing. And I think part of it, you know, it was great. And actually, after he came to see it and he understood what I was doing every day, he his relationship to me leaving all the time was different. Not that he liked, not that he was happy I was leaving or felt okay about me leaving, but he knew exactly where I was and what I was doing when I was gone. And yeah. I think that was really helpful for him to know what it was. Although he asks me frequently when the last company is going to be because he's very excited for the show to be over so that I can be at home again. <laughs> and, you know, which I totally understand. Totally get, yeah. um, though we will be sad to close, I will be excited to get to spend a lot more time with him. That's great. And I think so I also understand that you you do a lot of volunteering as well with your time, including with uh, organizations, uh, an organization called Covenant House is one of them. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, um, I've been involved with Covenant House for about seven years. They help um, displaced and 
uh, and youth, youth who are struggling with homelessness. And um, a lot of them come to New York because they were kicked out of their homes. And um, so they do, we do fundraisers for them. It's called Sleep Out, where we all, like it's a, the, a, ca- a big group of Broadway people all sleep outside in a very well-secured area. <laughs> But not to pretend to be homeless for a night, but to in solidarity of that. And we raise a bunch of money um, to help them out. It's a really incredible organization. And as I started Strangers, uh, City of Strangers, um, you know, one of the one of the things uh, that I thought was really important was not only to help people who can't afford a Broadway ticket, um, you know, like actors who are coming up, new writers, new young people who just don't have the money because they are paying off student loans and trying to figure out how to live in New York City, but also people who don't feel welcome in the Broadway space because it feels like a very elitist thing to some people. Sure. That I so we invited a group from Covenant House. Um, we I you know I invited every um, every arts educator in New York City. I offered a ticket to as well. But Covenant House brought a really fantastic group of volunteers and some of the some of the people who live there who are uh, actors and have, who aspire to being artists. And um, it was a very moving night to have them there. But it's a group that I believe in a lot. That's great. And where can people find their organization online? Uh, if you Google Covenant House New York, okay. um, you'll be able to find it. Okay, yeah. great. And finally, where can people find you online? They can find me on Instagram at Claiborne Elder. That's the easiest place to find me. Okay, great. Well, Clay, this has been lovely. Uh, Thank you. It's so nice to connect with you. You know, thank you so much for doing it. Particularly, you've got you're in the middle of a very busy month. Um, You're awesome. It's very nice to. (laughs) I am. You're awesome. It's so nice to meet you too. I am in awe. I hope we can actually like get together and have dinner and yeah. If you're ever in the city, we can all, Elna, we can have a party and I would now love we that. know each other and we can all hang out. Yeah, I, I be great. would love it. Uh, I wish you continued success and safety and good health to your beautiful family. Thank you, Clive. Thank you. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Claiborne Elder. A big thanks again to Clay for doing it. I hope you all enjoyed it. If you'd like to join us in supporting Clay's organization, City of Strangers, go to at City of Strangers NYC on Instagram. And please also join us in supporting Covenant House by going to at Covenant underscore house on Instagram. Before we move on to our second interview, I'm going to take another opportunity to ask you all to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting your podcast from today. We've got more incredible interviews with folks like Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abermite, Gil McKinney, Sufi Bradshaw, Remy Dunn, and Michael Grant Terry coming in the next few weeks. Remember to subscribe to our Patreon to get all our extras with Chris Pine, Baron Vaughn, Sarah Paxton, Chantal Tui, Christine Woods, Patrick Adams, Leonard Robinson, and more. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash things are going great for me. And you can check out our link tree to get some of our merch. Our link tree is on Instagram at things are going great for me. If you like what you hear so far, please give us those five star ratings. Leave us a nice comment. We so appreciate all your ratings, reviews, and kind words. And we want to keep bringing you these great episodes. Next up is Lauren Buglioli. Lauren was the person who put me in touch with Ali Stroker, our Tony Award-winning guest from our first episode of Season 3. That should tell you right away what a fantastic friend and supporter Lauren is. She's also the first actor on the podcast who's currently based full-time out of the fast-growing Atlanta television and film market. I'm a big fan of hers, and you will be too. It's a great chat. Here now is the talented, funny, and kind Lauren Buglioli. Boo, boo, boo.
How you doing? I'm really great. I'm excited. And I just, yeah, it's, it's just very cool to catch up with you. Because also, we never really got to hang out in London, but you and Michael and Elna were the, like, you know, the heroes. Like, it just... It's so it's so cool to actually talk to you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so now that was very sweet, but also what you you said in your email. So I'm going to just say for folks, so you're the third guest on my program that I went to high school with, and as you said, we've had on uh, our our friends Elna Baker and Michael Benz. I'm thrilled to have you on. Aww, um, we went to a unique program at an American school in the UK, ASL, uh, mm-hmm. that happened to have a wonderful performing arts program. And um, so I, I did not know this that because I did not I did not know you in high school, right? I don't think we had met, had we? We or am I about to am I about to be very embarrassed? No, no. no. I was an eighth grader who, um, as poor uh, our our teacher uh, Buck Heron, as he remembers, unfortunately was so intense as an eighth grader. I actually interviewed him about the drama program before signing on for the drama program. I'm because... sorry. As an eighth grader, you you asked for an interview with him <laughs> to interview him about his program. <laughs> and he will, I don't, I, I don't know how scarred he is by it, but I, I interviewed the choral director and, and Buck because Buck Heron, our drama teacher, because I had to choose one or the other. And right. I didn't know which way I wanted to go. And, and Buck just really crushed the interview. <laughs> <laughs> he is lovely. I want to talk about him in a second. This is yes. a hilarious story, though. I uh, Yeah, so when I was there, I did, a, I did all of that. All of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there was one. I do remember signing up for, I think it was wrestling or something. And uh, I think it was the music teacher came and collected me and was like, no, you're not doing that. <laughs> because he wanted me to be doing uh, all of it, choir mm-hmm. included, which which I did do. You had to choose what was going on at that time. I know that the they had formed the performing arts department. Mm-hmm. But what was did it start turning into separate tracks where you could you had to choose either music or drama? From what my eighth grade brain remembers, yes, I yeah. think there was. You know, you either really focused on chorus or you did the the advanced drama program. I think there was a beginner drama program and then an advanced drama program from what I remember. And um, I just I thought Buck was incredible and his program yeah. was ridiculous for a, a high school program. So... I'm very grateful. Maybe that was true. Maybe maybe what I was doing was I was doing all music and then new Buck because we would do that musical every year and so would work with Buck on those. And then I think I would do, you know, every once there'd be a play that I would do that Buck would say, hey, there's this, we're going to work on this. Would you like to be in it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I might have entirely made that up and maybe I just wanted to interview some people as an eighth grader. I, I just know. think that's hilarious. Do you, do you have any, any memory of like questions that you were asking him? I... I don't, I just remember joking with him about it at one point. And cause I mean, he changed my life. He's been an epic mentor and then, yeah. you know, and it has continued to be wildly supportive, but I think we looked back at one point and kind of laughed at the absurdity of <laughs> who I am as a human and nothing has changed. So, you know, there's that. 
<laughs> but uh, it's it's nice to find your people and be appreciated for that absurdity. So there's there's that part. Completely. What so previous to um, so Buck Heron was our uh, a mutual mentor to all of the above people I've already mentioned in our in high school and who just retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw him recently he just came out for a visit to la um, i know i'm very jealous it was a it was a great catch up uh with him he got to meet the kids and then he and i uh, went out grabbed some dinner um such a sweet man uh brilliant guy um and just a like a wonderful sense of humor sensitive and thoughtful and passionate in all the right ways right absolutely absolutely what was your, so then if you were already thinking in terms of, so then you knew earlier than eighth grade that this is what you wanted to be doing. I, I did. And I was lucky that in since I was, I was born in LA and right. I started doing commercials as a kid, like six months old. And my mom was very smart and set that money aside for, for college and, and all of it. And um, I have a car thanks to her. Um, and <laughs> I, you know, I worked in LA as a kid and then we moved around a lot for my dad's job. And then ultimately middle school, high school was in London. And thanks to Buck, I, I worked over there. So, um, it's, it's interesting. It sounds very kind of similar to, uh, my story. I, I started working a little bit, uh, maybe after you did, I mean, not at six months old. I can see you on set as a six month old just being like, I need, I need coffee. Is this, <laughs> <laughs> I said macchiato. Um, <laughs> But uh, yes, I mean, I think I started to work a little bit professionally when I was about 10, I think, 10 years old. So much I, later. But but if uh, you're referencing the Encyclopedia Britannica work. Uh, <laughs> if you remember me talking about that on another video. I sure do. I will never forget. Good Lord. That was such a fun day. That day started with um, that day started. I was in an Encyclopedia Britannica commercial for a CD-ROM that they were doing. And I just remember the trailer having it wasn't my own i didn't get my own trailer but there was like a a trailer that had the oh it's a crafty and there was candy and somebody was just like i was like can i (laughs) has one uh and they were like have us have whatever you want and i was like what is this place and oh man and then our first setup was with a it was a family scene at me playing one of the kids of this family. And they brought out a cardboard box that inside had golden retrievers and puppies in it. That was the first thing I ever shot professionally for camera. And you're so like, this is it. This so the is- direction was just like, um, live your best life. <laughs> do you remember? So how many commercials did you do when you were a very young child? Do you remember? So do you have a count? I, I don't have a count. I know that, I was, uh, according to my mom, I was the Hallmark kiddo. So like the different um, holidays, like at Easter, I'd be chilling with the Easter bunny. And, and uh, I did some uh, a commercial for Levi's jeans and Bush Gardens. Uh, some, uh, so I don't know. I haven't. I don't have a count. I'll have to ask my mom if she if she knows. Um, and it was, but a, I was you made yourself enough uh, money during that period to pay for what uh high school and college or help pay for high school and college uh for uh college and my car uh like so yeah say enough savings to like a little nest egg essentially and so i was really really lucky and i was very lucky that my mom was not um a stage mom 
in the traditional sense. Like she would always say, if you're not having fun, then we don't have to do this. And yeah, it, it, it that really, I think permeated I my mindset. <laughs> I'd be scolded if I didn't get a call back. Um, that's right. not true at all. My, I, I was thrilled that I, it was kind of the same vibe. I mean, it was just, you know, oh, my child is interested in this. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's this, there's an audition that they're right for. I, I don't even know where the auditions came from, to be honest. But my mom on occasionally would say, oh, there's, we're, I'm going to take you over to do something or an audition for something. Right. Um, so that's lovely. That's the way it should be. I was very lucky, very lucky. And it's still, and she's still wildly supportive. I'm very lucky. My family is very encouraging. I'm the one who's had to get out of my own way. <laughs> So that. Is that right? And talk to me a, bit, a little bit about that. So how does that how does that um, how does that bear out? Are you think, are you particularly hard on yourself? Oh goodness, uh, yes, wildly so, and always working on it. But I think I you know reminding myself that no art is born from perfection, and you've got to just enjoy it. You've got to like not be so critical. And so, and it was, I loved your interview with Michael talking about, you know, just when you were reflecting on putting that kind of pressure on yourself and that you can love a thing and you can also, uh, strangle it if you don't practice kind of showing up and being where your feet are and breathing and, and remembering to play. So that's, that's a practice. And I think for me as a kid, it's easy to say, have fun doing this. And then the reality of adulthood sets in, right? And you start thinking about things you don't think about as a child, like health insurance and, you know, keeping a roof over your head and fear can creep in, you know? Absolutely. I, I mean, I don't think I've ever solely made my living just with professional acting ever. Um, but the pressure of that, of course, is a very real thing for folks. I mean, I do think that I wonder sometimes about folks where they, they've had this great career going for a while where they have paid for their life through mm-hmm. their bookings. And then suddenly for some reason, the work dries up, you know, I was just reading mm-hmm. an article, an old interview with William H. Macy, who said something that I hang on to, uh, have hung on to, cause I've heard him say it in an, in a, one of those round table discussions that were, there were three times in his life, in his career, where he didn't work for a certain number of years, mm. three. And, mm. um, you know, so I do wonder, you know, for those folks who have never had to have a survival job, you know, um, uh, what do they do in those moments when all of a sudden there is, for one reason or another, there's no work? Um, are you, ha- how long have you been sustaining yourself on your booked work? This is the first year I can say I've acted, I was acting full time. That's so huge. huge. And I mean, I think it, (laughs) I love the name of your podcast. And for so long, (laughs) things were not going well at all. Um, So it, you know, I, I, I wanted to go to NYU and to attend Tisch more than anything. I did the summer high school program. Oh, I yeah, worked. I did the same thing. Yeah. Really? Were, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh we did gosh. very similar stuff. Oh, man. And then I took a hard turn when I got to New York. Um, it, it, you know, I screen tested for a role on a show when I first got there and almost left school. Like that was, mm. you know, if that had panned out, I would have left. Yeah. And, you know, it went to the other person and it scared me. And 
I ended up transferring out of Tisch to get a degree in something else. So I, I've always worked with kids and I got a degree in Education. early childhood ed and special ed. Yep. Interesting. Um, okay, got it. And then just, you know, I, I ran into some health issues and then I, and I was just too scared to really go for it. I, and that's, mm. you know, the getting out of your own way, like trusting that things work out and kind of staying the course. Yeah. And after graduating from NYU, went out to L.A. for a year at 23. And it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. Can be. Uh, sure. <laughs> it, it, was, it was for me at that time. Yeah. Um, and um, ended up going back to New York and, and acting and training for the fun of it. And then after 10 years in New York, moved to Florida uh, did some regional theater and then yeah. saw what was happening in Atlanta and and decided to move to Atlanta for a year. And yeah. that was three years ago. I want to talk, definitely want to talk about the Atlanta portion. I want to talk about all of it. I want to ask you, uh, so, you know, when you were in the UK, you, it, did, it does look like you did take some good advantage of uh, the theater and also the training there. I know you've studied mm -hmm. at the London Academy and the Central School of Speech and Drama. Did you do the Lambda Shakespeare program? Is that the one you did? I did their exams. So I worked with um, a, another mentor who completely changed my life, um, Tara Dean at the time, now Tara Lignos, who, and she is at Apple. She's like oh, wow. absolutely crushing it. Um, and she I, she taught at Sylvia Young Theater School. Did you ever mm -hmm. hear? I so, never went, but yes, very well-known so, yep. theater yes. program. Yes, mm -hmm. so I went every Saturday and then I took her class and I think I was 12 at the time. And I did the honey bunny scene from Pulp Fiction in her class. Like at age were... 12? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, all you motherfuckers, I'll yep. execute every last one of you. Yep. And I was standing up on a chair and lost my mind. Like there's... <laughs> it oh, just... I would, would she pay showed... money to see a 12-year-old do that. <laughs> it's so funny. It was like the most alive I think I've ever felt. And she showed up at my door the next day and asked to coach me for the Lambda exam. So from that age till I graduated at 18 and she coached me for my NYU audition. We worked together every Sunday and wow. she, she's incredible. She's family. So I was very lucky and then just took classes at, at central school of speech and drama. And so, um, didn't obviously go to a conservatory or anything over there. Yeah. But, but you'd pop into class. Yeah. Class. I trained mm -hmm. over at, um, I trained with somebody on my NYU monologue at the Guildhall school, Amazing. which was, which was, um, not very, um, what would I say? I wouldn't say a, a, a bunch of rigorous study. It was just sort of, I think it was just once a week for a few, maybe a month or so going in, working on a monologue from the seagull, the Constantine monologue. My mother doesn't love oh, wow. me. Um, wow. and, uh, but the Guildhall school is in that Barbican complex and it is, you know, it looks like Blade Runner. It's just these large windowless brick buildings, national theater included. Mm -hmm. Once you get inside the national theater, you know, there's light coming in, but it is these very sort of this, um, sort of very functional, uh, designs, mm -hmm. right on the South mm -hmm. bank. Mm -hmm. And, um, but it was all, but it was cool going over there at, after school to do something special and cool that yeah. nobody else was doing to work on, you know, an audition for, getting back into NYU for college. And um, yeah, I remember they just had the the worst coffee machine I've ever experienced. 
Really? In the world. I mean, it was like <laughs> gasoline that came out of the coffee machine. And then kids ordering the uh, most unappetizing tuna fish sandwiches I've oh. ever seen in my life. Um, I've never been over to Central School. I did the Lambda Shakespeare certificate, one, uh, I think, this summer then before I went back to for freshman year at Amazing. NYU and, uh, and enjoyed that a lot and learned a lot about Shakespeare. I haven't gotten a chance to do much Shakespeare in my career. Have you? No, no. I'm very um, interested in doing it now. I, you know, I appreciate it so much, but it's never been my wheelhouse, you know? So you appreciate the language. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And, but it just, I, it, I haven't, I haven't gone down that road yet. We know it's interesting because you think about like those kids who, if you're a young person getting cast in Romeo and Juliet, um, you know, those roles, even though they're supposed to be, what are they supposed to be, 16 maybe? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But if you cast 16-year-olds to play those roles, like it's so, how daunting that would be. Because like, I don't, I didn't there's so much life experience written into these young characters that their, their experience of the, the sort of the natural world that they talk about the moon and the, you know, the, the stars, 16 year olds, like the, what, that depth. Is, what do, yeah. what do they know about how do they, about the, you know, the, even the moon, like what, what do they know about, or, and let alone love. I mean, the, the, the kind of love that gets explored in that mm-hmm. play is that, is that big love, that right. love that is painful. And, you know, with the plans with people dead, like, right. Um, so I always wonder a little bit, like if uh, for young actors, it's like, if they're getting exposed to Shakespeare and they're getting, somebody's getting cast as Romeo or or Juliet, it's like, I could see that kind of turning people off Mm -hmm. because it just might seem kind of impenetrable. And to have any kind of a director kind of be working with somebody that age and saying like, no, it has to be bigger. It has to be more important. And it's like, I don't know. I don't know what that is yet. Or, Or I know what those feelings are, but like, I can't put those kinds of feelings into my own words, let alone Mm -hmm. describe them in this older text, you know, beautiful poet, poetic text. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's why I think like now I feel like this would be an interesting time for, for me to play Romeo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. There you go. Uh, I'd love to dive into some Shakespeare now, but I think like at that age, it was, it was pretty, Do I liked have... learning about it. I liked Do learning, you, have... you know, about like the scrolls and all of that kind of thing mm-hmm. that actors were given these little like rolling pins with just their lines on it. I thought that kind of thing was kind of cool. Do you have a bucket list show? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, hmm. I guess Hamlet. I guess mm-hmm. every. I guess a lot of actors would love to play Hamlet. Yeah, and I we I got to see Michael Benz do it and talk oh to him about gosh. it. I thought he did such a phenomenal job. And we talked about the English training and how you sort of putting the emphasis on the language and like finding the energy in the words and, and allowing that to sort of um, sort of push the story forward. And it's, it's a fascinating way of training that's not, not too dissimilar, I guess, to Adler in the sense that Adler is very much about the doing mm-hmm. and the playing of the character. And then, you know, when it comes to the emotional life, Stella's approach has been, you know, if, if you feel something is a byproduct of the mm-hmm. doing, 
Mm-hmm. If you catch a feeling, you don't have to deny that. And I, and right. Mike seemed to say that that was pretty pretty similar, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the approach. Like they're not denying an emotional life of the actor, right. but right. they st- they start with the words, you know. Mm. So I think it's cool. I mean, like I've I've said to some folks on here, it's that, I think this is why we see a lot of Brits um, playing Avengers and uh, DC character whatever is because you know they, those uh, drama students are being trained to play gods, right. Right. You know? Uh, yep. And, you know, I, there's a, I, I dipped my toe in by auditioning for Ophelia about right before the pandemic. Heavy. And, and, yeah, and was so excited. And theater breaks my heart in a way that nothing else does because I, I'll fall in love with a character and fall in love with text. And yeah. it just, auditioning for that breaks my heart in a different way, you know? So, yeah. It's just that that was one that got me. I was like, I really, I really wanted to to dive into her just because it that what a what a role and what a role yeah what a role. <laughs> so, but I not to say I would never do it, but it's not. I think it's a thing that scares me, and that's good, you know. Sure. But, so much of it, I think yeah. what we're doing is is kind of about like what <laughs> what yeah. is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to be the next challenge? And did you? Um, how much theater did you go see on your on your own or with friends when you were in the UK? Did you see um, what were your favorite, maybe some of your favorite theaters? You know, Claude, if I saw Mamma Mia one more time, because every time <laughs> anyone from the States would come to visit, they wanted to see Mamma sure, Mia. Yeah. So uh-huh. I saw that countless times. Um, you know, I, I had a really cool experience where I saw... Um, Neil Labute's The Distance from Here at the Donmar with um, uh, Josh Brody, who went to ASL. I don't know if you ever met Josh. I went to see it too, and it was um, Jason 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 Ritter Ritter was in it. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mark Mark Weber, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And fell in love with that show. I just, very dark, but I was really into it. And then when I, my first year at NYU, uh, I don't know, did you have Lee Gundersheimer as an industry liaison? Uh, yes, he was. Mm-hmm. So he directed us in Distance from Here. I played Jen in Philadelphia. So that oh, was just cool. really cool. But I loved the Donmar. I saw Gwyneth Paltrow in Proof, and it was mm. not long after her father had passed away. It was it was mm. an incredible performance. So I loved the Donmar. Yeah, the Donmar was one of my favorites. And that, that was at the time when we were there, I think Sam Mendes had just left. And I think it was being run by Nicholas Heitner, who then went mm. over to the National Theater and ran the National Theater. I don't know if he still is, to be honest. Trevor mm. Nunn was running the National Theater when I was there. And then I think Nicholas Heitner took over. But the Donmar was great. And I saw some... Um, yeah, so it's James McAvoy in something called oh. Privates on Parade. I saw Chiwetel Ejiofor in, um, in a Eugene O'Neill, I think, there. Oh. I had seen him in other stuff at the National. Um, and then I, it's a production of Merrily We Roll Along that was the greatest, uh, one of my favorite experiences with a, a Sondheim show. Um, mm. a wonderful cast, won the Olivier Award. And mm. um, we, that I did go see multiple times. Um but yeah, the Donmar was cool. I saw American Buffalo with William H. Macy doing it oh. there. Um, and yeah, I used to just go a lot on my own to just mm-hmm. go see stuff. Um, it, I feel like there, London was the kind of town that was kind of easy to get around mm-hmm. um, with the tube and, and the bus system and things like that. So it, oh. it felt pretty accessible in terms of going out and doing things. 
I miss the bus so much. <clears throat> I didn't I didn't grow up driving because we were over there. Um, and <laughs> I learned to drive later in right, life, same. which was absolutely terrifying. But I missed the bus. And, and just because you brought up the National, two shows I saw there that I'll never get over. Um, Streetcar with Glenn Close. Oh, my she God. Was, and, and her daughter, Annie, went to ASL. And she's really I didn't know phenomenal. That. Yeah, she's really phenomenal in Nurse Ratchet. She's in it. Um, ah, okay. and which I was like, oh, she looks so familiar in ASL. Um, and then House of Bernada, Bernada Alba, I'm butchering it, but that was at the, uh, at the who's national. The, it was incredible. Who's the playwright? Oh, um, was it an English play? Was it an American? No, it's, I'll have to reference Google. I'm blanking on the, who the thing that the national theater does so well is that they really, they're marketing around their productions extends beyond the theater itself to the lobby of the theater they sort of redecorate the whole place sometimes yes, yes. to to sort of they bring in artists to sort of design the, the entire national theater compound becomes this playground mm-hmm. of sorts for this particular story that's being told which is a which is a really rad thing that they do Yes. Um, and Bernarda Alba is Lorca. It is, I wanted oh, to yeah, say okay. Lorca. Federico, Lorca, yes. right, yes. Horace. Um, so then, so, okay, so then you ended up going on to NYU. And, mm-hmm. you know, when when I was there, there were these various relationships that they had with these outside studios. There was, yes. you know, and you would get, you would audition for Tish and then they would place you mm-hmm. in one of the studios, like the Harry Potter sorting hat, basically, right? <laughs> yes, yes. They, so they'd say either you're going to Meisner or you're going to Stella Adler or you're going mm-hmm. to Strasbourg School. So which, because I know, I, I know you've trained at, in Adler and you've trained in Strasbourg. Where, where were you placed originally? So I did, I did the summer intensive at Adler and then I was okay. placed in Strasbourg, which is where I was for the ah, uh, okay. Tisch Summer High. Where where were you? I was well. That, I did two years of musical theater first at a studio that oh. is now with another I, college called Cap Twenty One. Okay. Yes. And then I, yeah. what I did was I used to go see the main stage shows and I would just write down who because the main stage shows were comprised of students from these other studios. And I would just write down who I liked. It was always an Adler student. So that's oh. where I went for my last, for my second two years. Wow. So smart. That's so great. Did you, did you enjoy Adler? Loved it. Yeah. I, yeah. Nice. It is my favorite. It's my favorite of the approaches. I think that it encourages the most imaginative, you know, imaginative choices and, you know, not being afraid of going big. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's funny because there was this, um, this thing of like going too big with things or I was just, uh, reading this interview with Viola Davis where somebody was asking her, I think, about the, her critical response to something that she had done recently. And she had this great line about it, which was like, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't give a shit what the critics are saying because it's like, they're always saying like, you, you either didn't do enough or you're doing too much. Mm. It's always one mm. or the other, you know? So yeah. I like that Adler like goes big with the use of imagination and, you know, use of physical instrument and all that stuff. And I think that it is certainly important then to get some kind of a training that is more focused for camera, like a mm-hmm. Meisner training or a Strasberg training. Um, so, but I just think they're, you know, different gears, like in, you know, you're just, you yeah. just have to shift depending on what you're doing. So yeah, I loved, I loved Adler. So what was your, so, Stra- so you got placed in Strasbourg. The interesting thing that I remember about Strasbourg, because it is such deeply personal work, mm-hmm. is that, you know, we were hearing from our uh, 
Strasbourg um, uh, fellow students that they were people were just leaving because it was just it was too intense. It was you know we were hearing stories of. You know, like, what What did you guys do today? And it was like, oh, we cried. We cried mm-hmm. all day and in classes. So, so. much. What was so that? Much crying. Did this contribute in some way to you and your hard left turn? You know, the hard left turn really came from that. There was a, a moment of me questioning if, if I was suited for the industry, you know, of just, I, I really. But it didn't come out of that. I think. It didn't come out of, it didn't come out of it. No, I, I, I just say, I like, I play a lot of people who cry a lot. I, that's kind of a a place that I'm comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, you know, when I was out in LA at Leslie Kahn, we, people would shout out as an exercise kind of impressions of you. And some of them, you, you turn your back to everyone. And someone said like American is, uh, is cherry pie. Someone else said, you know, Reese Witherspoon. And someone else said cries a lot. And I, you know, I processed everything and I went home and I processed it and I cried. And then I bust out laughing. I was like, well, you better take it to the bank. Like, listen, they're on to something. It's a wonderful skill to have. Not all actors can do it. Every, I mean, most actors are afraid of the, when it says in the script, like, the character breaks down and we have our tricks for getting there. Do you, do you just have a reservoir of, of stuff that is easy readily available do you find that in your regular daily life you feel extra sensitive to stuff that's coming at you i you know i feel like i've always been highly sensitive and that used to be perceived as a negative thing and now it it feels like your superpower yeah a portal into like okay i understand this person's humanity you know and Mm, yeah um it, it feels very liberating to say, oh, the thing that people used to kind of put me, put me down for, it's now you, you get paid to do it. That's cool. That's fun. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to, to be able to have that sort of depth of emotion. And I think, you know, there are many different kinds of skills, I suppose, that you could have in this, but some people are really good at improvisation. Some people are really good at, um, uh, I guess, you know, like working with like l- very heightened language and, you know, or physical work, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. folks who train in things like viewpoints and things like that. Mm-hmm. But when it does come to television and film, I mean, because that camera is seeing your eyes, the audience is, wants to see something going on in those eyes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that it's a wonderful skill to have, you know. And it, it does not serve me in my personal life. I cannot hide anything. <laughs> I am very easy to read. It's terrible. Yeah, got it. Got <laughs> I it. Have, I have zero, zero poker face. So, yeah, working on that personally. Um, so... Uh, what was I going to ask? I just take advantage of being near for college years. Um, oh yeah, did you did you take advantage of being in New York for your college years? Generally, I feel like I really lived in New York. Like, I think it feels like you know, ten years in New York feels like eighty-seven lifetimes. So yeah. you know, my first year at NYU, someone said, you know, don't forget that you can learn so much, only so much from a textbook and from from the classroom, you've got to live your life. Yeah. And that's where, you know, that hard turn ended up kind of serving me because whether it's, it's funny, I play a lot of teachers, I play a lot of like very maternal characters and, you know, I got my degree in education, as we said, but 
so it, the, the things I experienced as a teacher, the things I experienced personally, kind of having that identity crisis after only ever wanting to be an actor and that being the most important thing in the world to me. And then I think I was just too intense a kid that was thinking, was worrying about things, you know, how am I going to sustain myself in this career? And no one else was telling me to worry about that, you know, but yeah. I'm, I think I, I personally needed to know, I looking back now, I needed to know I could do something else and be happy and fulfilled. And, and I loved teaching. I loved teaching, but yeah. there was still that kind of unrequited. Uh, I just really wanted to give it a shot. That's why I went back out to LA and that's why I started doing theater again. I was like, well, I'll keep teaching and I'll do this for the love of it. And then, uh, life is wild and Atlanta happened. So, um, it's, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about this. You're my first guest who is primarily an Atlanta based actor, although not exclusively an Atlanta right. actor, so to speak, you have an Atlanta agent, but you're also repped in New York and mm -hmm. LA, correct? I am not currently repped in LA working on it. Um, but I, since I'm from there originally can jump back and forth uh, between New York, LA and, and Atlanta, but yes, primarily here. So, and you have, you spoke about this a little bit. Uh, I feel you've witnessed the development of Atlanta into the major hub of production in the entertainment industry that it's become. Um, like you said, you were doing some theater down in Florida. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember mm -hmm. that. I remember because mm -hmm. I remember seeing, just following along with you and seeing like, oh, you were doing, I think, Sally Bowles at a, in a very <laughs> fun production of Cabaret, I think. you know. <laughs> so with those things, by the way, are you, did you have an agent sending you out for that stuff or were you self-submitting for the theater? I, I didn't. That was, so Cabaret was um, at a theater in, in Florida that I saw when I first moved to Florida, I was teaching preschool or pre-K and um, I saw they were doing cabaret. And I mean, months before they even had auditions, I was like submitting and <laughs> just cause that, I mean, I'd been performing that in my bedroom since sure. I was way too young to uh -huh. uh, take a deep dive into Sally Bowles. Um, so that happening, it was like, if nothing else happened in my life, that was just the the dream of dreams. So yeah. I think that was also good for me to see, you know, cause that was community theater. And it was, it was a, a cool, a cool looking production, as I recall. I was, I mean, it was truly one of the best experiences of my life. It, it brought me back to life in a lot of ways. So I just seeing like it, it doesn't, as long as you are doing the thing ultimately. And I think that just gives me some peace that if, if things change drastically tomorrow, there's always a way to do the thing you love, you know? Mm. Yeah. So, well, that's, I think that that is an interesting comment because I do, I do know of people who are, particularly during this pandemic, have uh, taken stock of what they had been doing with their lives. I know people who have turned to acting all of a mm -hmm. sudden mm -hmm. and they get their headshots and they uh, start some, putting up a profile on websites and you know, something starts to happen, something. Yep. They get yep. a commercial or they, you know, they, some of them are, they get an agent, you know, and mm -hmm. I think that it's, I think it is important to remember. And I know folks out here in LA who were never getting in for anything. 
Mm-hmm. We're never getting considered for things. We're never. We're being told by agents, no, you're never going to work. You know, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden now we're working uh, more than most of the, you know other people that I know who've been working steadily the whole time. Wow. It does seem to be a thing where it's like you don't have to decide. Oh, it, if it hasn't happened by now, it will never happen. That is not this particular business. It doesn't. Not everybody is going to get rich doing this. I think that is something that that we should all make peace with. If that's what it was about, I would caution that person. Like, don't then don't maybe don't do it because it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got to be quite a great business person on top of being an artist in order to, you know, I think to be successful that way and and great with people. But the idea that, oh, it'll never happen or I will never get an opportunity or never, I would never say never on that. If there's one thing I could say, it would be that. You just never know. And literally anything's possible. It's just, yeah. And I think one of my, I, I joke that I'm her publicist, but when I went out to LA, I was out there with my friend, Ali Stroker, who. Um, sure. Another yeah, NYU yeah. grad, Tony Winner? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Tony yeah. Winner. And, um, you know, it, it was rough in LA and seeing her journey and seeing, mm. I mean, just it's, that's just endlessly inspiring to me to, and I, watching that and then we were both in Wilmington filming things simultaneously this last year oh so cool we went out to lunch and I was like what is life you just (laughs) never know so that was I think one of my favorite moments ever she was there on a show called Echoes and I was there on Florida Man Mm, and it just it was I mean I think that it's just I'll never get over that very very excited by the way for you about Florida Man definitely want to get into that that a big deal on that and I but, but I want to add, let me just ask quickly about Atlanta one more time. This, you know, just witnessing this all kind of coming together. Could you speak to that a little bit? Because it kind of went from, um, what was it like before? I guess Netflix opened up a shop there, which was not how it started, but it's eventually it was like, oh, this is now becoming more and more a legitimate place. What, what was that development like witnessing it? So all have been here for four years in June. So I'll say that other people could probably speak to it. You know, there are people who've born, who are born and raised here. What's interesting is my mom is from Smyrna, Georgia. Um, mm. And I grew up, even though we moved around a ton, I grew up coming to Atlanta. Never, you know, and there wasn't always this industry here, right? Um, and then... Good I theater the scene, more, as I recall, right? Oh, great. The Alliance. I mean, great mm-hmm. theater scene here. Yeah. Yes. Um and I think the more production started coming here, it just, I mean, people started coming in droves and there's incredible talent here, incredible filmmakers here and a really phenomenal community. One of my favorite mm. things I have ever worked on this movie, Courtney Gets Possessed, uh, we did in March of 2021 and it's all Atlanta. It's Atlanta filmmakers, uh, Peach Jam Productions, which is uh, John O. Mitchell and Madison Hatfield, and it was just, I think, seeing the Atlanta community come together on on different projects. It's it's a kind of support that I I didn't necessarily experience in other markets, but also you know wasn't there for quite as long. But I just I think people really champion one another here, mm. um, which has been I've been very lucky to experience. So, so it's, that's wonderful. So it's sort of like witnessing, like everybody is, you're sort of looking around and you're like, oh, 
all are, all boats seem to be rising at the same time. Like everybody yes. seems to be like, oh, you got this. And oh, you got that. And it's like, do you think part of it is like there was there was an interesting moment where there, the pool of people was smaller and the amount of production was starting to sort of like uh, move out ahead in terms of the how many people were there to work? You know, there's always been phenomenal talent here. I think the more the industry has grown, the more people have come here and wanted yeah. to see it continue to, because there's a little bit of a, you know, sometimes people will talk about a local actor in a different way than they'll talk about someone from New York or LA. And I love to say like a zip code is a zip code. And, and you, I understand the prestige of, of other markets, but also, you know, acknowledging that there is room for everyone and every, so I just, I, I think, I think you artists. are an example of how that is changing. And I'd like to, you know, I'd like to congratulate you on that and talk a little bit more about that. But yes, absolutely. That would be a thing that we would hear here is they would say something like, well, you know, they're just picking up like the, 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 you know, the, the co-star, or the smaller roles on a particular thing, but then they'll grab a series regular out of LA or out of a New York, you know? And I think that is now, that's now starting to change now too, which is exciting. It, you know, yeah. fair is fair, by the way. Yeah. 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 So, um, being wrapped by different agencies. Now, that is an interesting, that's an interesting relationship always, you know, because I do feel like some agents will say like, oh, well, don't worry, you know, we're, we're covering you in that major market or, you know, mm -hmm. so you could if, you know, you could end up in a sticky situation where if you're not getting auditions in that market, you feel a little bit hands tied. H how does it, how do you navigate uh, the relationship of having an agent in one particular market and an agent in, a, in another? I've been very lucky. I, I have just really communicated clearly with the team saying, you know, okay, what, what works best for everyone? How, you know, how can we all work together? And they're not submitting me, it, you know, my Southeast agents submit me in the Southeast, New York uh, tackles New York. And uh, my manager will tackle sometimes LA as well. Um, so just making sure everyone communicates and that we're all on the same team. And I've been very lucky. So you know, that's there's great. no, there's no double submissions essentially. So that's oh, interesting. Okay. Well, yeah. that's great. And do when, what happens just out of curiosity and for folks who might be interested to know. So what happens then when it comes to things like commissions, is it do, the person who gets you in for that particular job, that is their commission period. Mm -hmm. That does mm -hmm. not also then get spread around to. Yeah. Okay. All right. 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 Um, so what would you say then, I suppose, because there are a lot of LA actors who are interested in getting involved uh, now with some of the production that's happening in Atlanta. Do you have any advice mm -hmm. for those folks? Yes. Um, or at this point, is it just fuck off? <laughs> no, like we, we've got never. our situation now and we were told or we yeah. were made to feel. And so you all can, you know, that's, I'm so glad you said that. Cause I would never, <laughs> it's like, it's that whole, it would be understandable. Yeah. You know, I just, I would never expect to move out to LA and someone tell me to F off, even though that was I'm sure my it experience. happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was absolutely my experience. Yeah. Or, you uh, know, they'd say that in LA is they loved you, which oh. is really just fuck off. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They well. loved, everybody loved you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, that's what that meant. Um, <laughs> well, I would say, um, you know, a friend of mine gave me some great advice uh, when I was looking at Atlanta. He said, go and live in the city unemployed. 
So go stay at some Airbnbs for a while, check out the city and make sure you enjoy the city unemployed so that if you decide to build a life there, you make sure you're happy in that city. Okay. And um, I did that for for a minute, came back and forth, um, making sure I, I enjoyed the environment and then decided to make a move and build a life here. And I, was, I told myself I'd give it a year and just see if I got any traction. And I fell in love with the city and fell in love with the community. So, um, you know, it's interesting in the self-tape world, we can be in some cases anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think making sure you're in a city that it's a great quality of life, that you are happy and healthy, and then Mm -hmm. then that being the priority, and then, you know, looking for reps and, and all of that. But I think really especially in Atlanta, valuing community and um, acknowledging what's been built here because the people who uh, are here have fought for for this community. And um, I think acknowledging that and wanting to contribute to it is it's a certain energy. And that's I think it's something that makes it really special here. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, So let me see here. Um, So now so these days, you've got uh, you're you're a very busy actor. You've got eight or nine uh, projects in pre or post production. Just an incredible year for you. Huge congratulations. Love to see it. Thank you. Um, you're you, you've got upcoming Tyler Perry's Netflix movie A Jazz Man's Blues, which is mm-hmm. uh, written and directed by Perry. A Jazz Man's Blues unravels 40 years of secrets and lies in a tale of forbidden love and family drama soundtracked by juke joint blues in the deep south and apparently this is the very first screenplay that mr tyler perry wrote 26 years ago very exciting congratulations thank you thank you and it is i mean from i was weeping through the table read i Mm, the first time i read this i get chills talking about it it is an incredible story and it just being a part of that, I beyond grateful. It was really not not like how personal or auto, not autobiographical. This story. No, 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 no. But certainly, probably a lot of heart in it. Yeah, a, a yeah. lot of heart, and it's it's just a beautiful love story. Yeah, and you've worked with Mr. Perry, Mr. Tyler Perry, and his company multiple times mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, n- not only is he a titan in the industry, building a brand new studio from scratch before Netflix came. <laughs> he also mm-hmm. seems like a sage mentor to many in the industry, and you know you're both inspirational people. Have you have you had an opportunity to chat with him on a personal level? Has he ever given any advice about creating art or the business of it, or life he, life advice? Uh, we we I did not get life advice. I will say, such a phenomenal human being, mm-hmm. very very kind, very. I mean, we didn't get to chat too much but he was very supportive has amazing energy and i don't think there's anything he cannot do it's remarkable to watch and just yeah. to see that empire in action is it's phenomenal so that yes i but i i hope to get life advice from him because goodness i will take notes yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and do you when is that do you know when that one is going to be coming out I don't, I, it, it, I'm told this year, but I don't, I don't know. But it has wrapped. Can you talk a yes. little bit about uh, the character that you're playing in it? Or do you need to keep some stuff a little quiet on that? Um, I don't know that I can talk about it. What I'll say yeah. is a blanket statement is I play some terrible people. 
Oh, Let's got see. it. Okay. Yeah, I'll just <laughs> right, say okay. that. Well, sweet dreams. Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, very exciting. And I so also, I, this is, you know, wonderful news. You are also a uh, recurring guest star on an upcoming Netflix uh, series called Florida Man with Clark Gregg, Abby Lee, and Edgar Ramirez with a creative team that includes Jason Bateman. This is huge news. Congratulations on this. Thank you. I'm living in an emotional blackout. It just that's, I cannot. And this cannot. is the one you had this. You had a you had a big deadline article. It was your face right there on the deadline article. This is one of those bucket list things, right? Oh, Claude, I'm unwell. And you know what? The first thing I did. <laughs> the first thing I did was email Buck Heron. Oh, that's wonderful. And what did he? What did he say? <laughs> he was like, "You did it, kid." You know. Yeah, he's <laughs> he sure dead. Oh, he sure did. he's. I mean, very grateful for him. So what a wonderful it's... moment. Um, and so the synopsis for Florida Man reads, when a struggling ex-cop is forced to return to his home state of Florida to find a Philly mobster's runaway girlfriend, what should be a quick gig becomes a spiraling journey into buried family secrets and increasingly and an increasingly futile attempt to do the right thing in a place where so much is wrong. <laughs> <Florida>. <laughs> um, this sounds juicy and uh delightful uh and so you and you are playing caitlin fox an orlando tv news anchor who is underestimated but whose determination to get a career-changing story threatens to derail everyone's criminal plans fuck yeah hell yeah very excited about seeing you do this and you've have you wrapped all of that yes yes we wrapped season one in december how'd it go i I mean i was (laughs) A loser skipping down. The, I mean, I just was like skipping around the stage. It was, I, I mean, Claude, there's nothing cool about me. And <laughs> that just brought out, I mean, I had like a fox bedazzled keychain that I bought at Cracker Barrel. Like I, you couldn't uh, be less cool. It was, no, <laughs> you can't great. do that. Did you, were you able to incorporate that? Um, embarrassingly so when I accidentally ran into Jason Bateman in an elevator and I, showed him the keychain. Oh, and you went for it, yeah. And I didn't, I like, I was, you know. I got I, this keychain and. It was not, not, I mean, he was very kind. It was not cool. I just was like, thank you for changing my life. And also I have this keychain. <laughs> also I have this keychain. Incredible. Um, well, I'm excited to see you do that. I feel like that's like, I can see it. I can see it being right on the money. And did you feel, you know, can you talk a little bit about do you consider, is this the biggest job that you've done, would you say, or? Oh, I, I mean. It, most screen time that you've gotten on a, in a sort of a recurring yes. gig. Yeah. Yes. It changed. Do you, you know, when you're doing that as extensive amount of work on a particular character, uh, did you find any sort of new sort of ways that you needed to sort of approach things? Did you did you break out? I know you've done, I mean, you've done leads in feature films, um, you know. Did your process change at all in terms of working on on, an, on, a, on a character that comes back over a course of, I guess, I guess a bunch of episodes? It did. I, I worked with um, my friend Nicole Sellers, who was a news anchor. Um, cool. So that was really wildly helpful. And just interviewing people who had those experiences. And um, I think I'm a big coaching nerd. I just love to, so I worked with Leslie Kahn on it. I um, Mm. worked with a mentor, Richard Warner, just really 
taking a look at all the episodes and nerding out, like building her backstory, doing all the things that we, you know, that bring yeah. us all the joy. And um, it was just, I felt very lucky to get to live in her for a while. And they, it just can't, it couldn't have been dreamier. So just yeah. the directors were all phenomenal. Um, the writing's ridiculous. So if I don't do anything else for the rest of my life, like I'm just <laughs> very, very grateful for that. Um, and I'd never seen a breakdown for a character before that lit me up in in the same way. Because I just think sometimes one will come along that you're, you know, feel scarily right for, right? And we, so it, I was very lucky that it worked out because it, I was so so excited to dive into that so I'm, I'm excited to see it i don't know when it's coming out but um, uh, that was my next question yeah 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 but that, but that is all wrapped that's it that's very exciting. Well, i am i'm very excited to watch you do that um and so and you all you have your own interview show as well uh <laughs> which you call the rapid inspire which are very fun <laughs> and you do them via instagram live <laughs> That's right? very generous. That's very generous. Well, no, I think it's just as legitimate as doing this. I mean, it's just that I, I for me personally, like, I don't think I have Instagram live energy. Like, I think oh, that's, gosh. I think that's the, it, it gives me anxiety, the idea of doing this with a live audience. Oh. At least, I mean, I, I would, I'd be very excited to do this in a theater with people, but... Mm -hmm. To do it over Instagram, it, it feels where you got to keep checking in with what does this person say? Oh, someone's commenting. Like that part, I think, is would give me anxiety. I had to ignore it because people would say hi. And I'd be like, oh, hi. Oh, hi. no, wait. Oh, well. <laughs> Polite to so, a fault. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think I have Instagram live energy, but I, you know, that was born out of the pandemic. I was very much quarantined for a very long time and just wanting to connect with people and share stories, people who inspired me. So um, it is, it's not still going at the moment, but, um, I think I'm friendly to a fault and I needed, yeah. I needed that human connection at that time in particular. And yeah. so it was fun. Well, and speaking of inspiring, you did say this. So when you booked this, uh, with the, the Florida, Florida man role that you had, I remember you said, listen to me in your caption, listen to me, anything is possible, which was a lovely way to post about a personal success because it was a lovely way of, I, I think it was a very genuine way of sharing a message of like, th this is, this could happen to, to, to anyone. And there might be a healthy, maybe too much humility in that. But, but I do, I loved it. I thought it was such a wonderful thing to say. And, um, do you, what, what, what does does that dovetail? What is your philosophy on that? I mean, now that you've you, we've talked a little bit about this period in which you had this, what would you call a bit of an imposter syndrome after after that first year of college, and now that you're, you're this is you know like your best year yet, and things more to you know the best is yet to come. I mean, what has shaped your outlook in terms of approaching business? uh kind of stuff and the career side of things you know well thank you first of all because it's oh, social media is so weird um yeah it is whew, uh and it can do a number on everyone right and I, mm -hmm. I think i heard you say that few people go on there and end up feeling better right. so i try to be really cognizant of the energy i put out because when people say things are going well i'm like if you knew what new york looked like 
if you knew what LA looks like, I walked away from the business three times, Mm -hmm. you know, and had completely given up. And I think what's meant for you will find you and that it, and you never want to hear it when you're in it, but when you've had trials and tribulations, when it's not easy, the joy you feel when something works out, it's just, I mean, I feel like I'm exploding, you know? Um, and also yeah. I know that I can do other things and be fulfilled and that nothing defines, no one thing defines me. Right. Yeah. So I think for that, you know, psychotic eighth grader who was interviewing the <laughs> choral director and the, the drama teacher, not having the control was the thing that kind of made me freak out at 18. Mm. Like I'm not in control of this. And I, I do right. A, B and C as a teacher. And I know that, you know, I'm going to have health insurance and a salary and I'll be okay. And then it's mm. just the looking back and connecting the dots, seeing that there were certain things I needed to live to play certain characters. And that, you know, at, and I keep saying, if nothing else happens, I, I experienced more than I ever thought I would. And that for anyone listening who has ever doubted it, you you never, you know, there's a beautiful article by Anne Dowd um, that I'll have yeah. to send you where she okay. talks about, you know, kind of the beauty of not making it when you're younger and mm, yeah, and having faith and staying the course. And I, I never felt like I gave up because I, saw, I read a quote that was like, there's a difference between giving up and knowing when you've had enough. And the track that I was on, you know, yeah. I, I had had enough of the track that I was on. Yeah. My, my mental health was suffering. Mm-hmm. So I needed to take a break and recalibrate. And I think, you know, if we're lucky, life is long and you just never know what's in store. And that also yeah. no job is the answer, you know, and seeing that everyone at every level doubts themselves and has bad days and, and mm-hmm. every echelon presents new challenges. I think it just brings a kind of humanity to everyone that we're not separate. You know, we have different experiences, but no one has more value or worth because of their resume, you mm-hmm. know? And I think yeah. I had, I had a lot of shame around, well, you were an actress and this is all you ever wanted and you failed. And I, hmm. it, there's just no validity in that. Like I had no. as much value when I, I was down and so out many times. Yeah. Yes, you know, and you draw on it, you know, Um, I, I play either evil people or wildly intense people going through something mentally. And I'm like, great, (laughs) you you know, you got to live your life to to play someone Uh, having a hard time. Uh, So, yeah, it's just, I think um, I'm always working on being kinder to myself and having faith and and trusting the process and that's buck heron came to see me in uh in cabaret and he wrote the day he came to see the show he uh he wrote on a post-it um enjoy the process that's just so i think i always need the reminder of even when you're down and out there's you're gonna draw on something from it you're learning something growth is really uncomfortable yeah, that's right. It is. Exactly. Well, that's lovely. Mm-hmm. All of that. Um, and so, all right. I'm, so finally, where can people find you online? Now that um, we've just talked it, about how the evils of social media. Yes, <laughs> yes. I love a social media detox. Um, but I am on social media, Lauren underscore Buyoli. Good luck saying that. I accept any rendition of that name. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can find, find me on Instagram. And yeah. 
great. Thank Wonderful. you so well, much. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for doing this. I am. I'm proud to know you. Oh. Um, <laughs> You are you. you are super talented, um, such a fun and lovely person. All those rules that you're talking about, I'm excited. I'm excited for the day when you do a comedy because you're super super funny. Thank um, you. I'm so happy to see all of your success and excited to watch you continue to shine. I'm wishing you more of the same. Much love to you and to your two dogs, Vixen, Beverly Hills Cop Two, <laughs> who are a couple of stars themselves on on your Insta. Do they have their own Instagram channel? They or? don't. Okay. They don't. Forthcoming. Forthcoming, <laughs> yeah. folks. Um, Thanks so much for doing this. Great to see you always. Thank you. Great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) If you listened all the way to the end of this episode, thank you. Hey, since you stuck around, why not go ahead and give us a subscribe? Or perhaps a sweet, sweet five-star rating. A nice comment, and we'll return the favor by bringing you even more quality conversation in the future. You can check out our Patreon and our swag for more ways to support the pod. You can find both in our Instagram handle at things are going great for me. Stay tuned because we've got just four episodes left in season three, premiering every Wednesday, including interviews with Beth Reisgraf, Susie Abramite, Gil McKinney, Sufi Bradshaw, Remy Don, and Michael Grant Terry, to name more than a few. Our sound engineer is Christopher Frontiero, and our series composer is Cormac Bluestone. Our graphics editors are Sierra Hauser and Leon Simone. All right, for you truly thorough listeners, here's a secret. It's getting toward the holidays, and every year at this time of year, I try to pare things down, keep things simple, enjoy myself, stop putting a bunch of things on the calendar. But I'm never successful. I always get slammed. Every moment seems to be gobbled up, pun intended. Anyway, all I'm saying is, I see you all. You're doing great. One more good push, folks. (laughs) We're almost there. See you next time.